weeknights from 6 on 2FM. Yes, big thanks to the two lads that are the two Johnnies for keeping us entertained this afternoon. It is Tuesday the 24th of January and you are listening to Game On. Coming up this evening we have association football, tennis and racing, but that's not all. As ex-Wales captain Garrett Bale gets the call from the PGA Tour and ex-Kildare captain Paul Meskell gets the call from the Academy Awards. So we'll be hearing from Danny Mullins, Warren Gatlin, Mark Langdon and more over the next hour. If you want to get in touch, you can text us on 51552 or tweet at Game On 2FM. Game On on 2FM. Yes, hello there, good evening. It's great to have your company. I'm in the company of Ruby Walsh. Ruby, how are you, sir? I'm great. yourself? No BAFTA call for you, Shane, no? No, no, unfortunately not. No, the as far as my acting career went, I think it was a primary school play. I was the narrator in The King and I. That's that's as far as it went for me, unfortunately, Ruby. Went well for you, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's your dry wit that I love and I've come accustomed to, Ruby. Um, let's get stuck into a couple of news headlines before we um, get into the nuts and bolts of this evening's show. Former Portugal manager Fernando Santos has been appointed Poland's new head coach. Santos led Portugal to European Championship glory in 2016 and was at the helm for eight years until his reign came to an end after the 2020 World Cup in Qatar. Santos was appointed after former Rangers and Aston Villa manager Steven Gerrard had been heavily linked uh, with the role. Connacht director of rugby Andy Friend says Bundiaki will remain as a Connacht player next season. The Ireland international's absence from the squad in recent weeks has been a major talking point with the centre last featuring in their defeat to Ulster on December 23rd. Local reports suggesting Munster was a possible destination for Aki. However, Friend has dismissed uh, the speculation. And finally, Ruby, Michaela Schifrin has become the most successful woman in World Cup skiing history with the 83rd victory of her career. The giant slalom win in Italy takes her one clear of the record previously held by fellow American Lindsay Vaughn. Schifrin, 27 years of age, finished 0.45 seconds ahead of the field in Tuesday's race. The two-time Olympic gold medalist and now only three World Cup wins short of the overall record held by Sweden's Ingemar Stenmark. There you are now. Are you a skiing fan, so uh, I like skiing. Am I a skiing fan? Probably don't watch as much of it as I used to. But I could have swore I watched the World Cup in Qatar in 2022. I, I mentioned that. You did, but you said it was in 2020. I, I, oh, and, and there it is printed in front you of you. You had me all confused. I was thinking, was the World Cup that long ago? Well, see, people lose two years because of COVID and everything. So. Yeah, that's true, yeah. yeah. Then I was thinking, was the World Cup delayed for two years because of COVID? Sorry. Then I was trying to count back and I had to go all the way back to Italia 90 and go forward and forward from there to see if it was still in sync. Yeah, and it was. <laughs> You're dry weight, man. You never let me over that, Ruby. That's why I love you. That's why I love see, you. See, I'm always listening to you, Shane. I've, well, I appreciate that. And so you should be. And so you should be. Um, one new story that I did mention in, at the start there. Uh, well, we mentioned it in our intro, and Mark Langdon is on the line now um, to tell us more, I suppose, Ruby, because former this Wales... This is not captain, a story now. This is not... It's a non-story. It's not a story. He's playing in a pro-am and he's the am. Uh, listen, this could be the, this could be the, the segue into... Uh, just because you're a regular pro am, so you're you're not referred to as a. No, as a I was reading. I was thinking, God, imagine how did, I was thinking, how did he get in? Sorry, start with a story in the beginning, will you? Okay. People think people have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> we're just having a, a pub conversation here between yourself, yourself, and Mark, who who is on the line. Mark, are you there? Hi, hi guys. Yeah, I, I have. I mean, um, not surprised that Gareth Bale uh, will be sort of making his PGA um, debut at the uh, Pebble Beach. Pro-Am, um, you know, he, he does love his golf, but I think as as Ruby was saying, you know, he wouldn't be the only 
sports person or famous person that gets invited um, to these events and um, you know usually frustrates I think some of the that the pros having to go around um, w- w- with the hackers but um, you know Bale is, is better than that and um, I'm sure he'll be able to sort of hold his own and sort of not be an embarrassment um, at, at Pebble Beach he, you know, he fancies himself as, as a bit of a golfer and I'm sure I think we spoke about this previously on, on the um, on, on this show that I don't really see a future for him in sort of football management or punditry. If he is to do anything sporting-wise, whether that's in hospitality or to try and make it, um, it, it will be in golf. It's, it's a true passion of easy. You know, he, he's a good golfer, but um, it's one thing being good, um, you know, or maybe the best of Real Madrid and quite another when you're mixing it with the, the best of the PGA Tour. Have you ever frustrated any pro golfers, Ruby? Absolutely. <laughs> Loads of them. Um, so I have in my time. Um, but I imagine Carapé playing off probably one or two now and trotting along with Andrei Shevchenko playing off even less uh, won't frustrate too many PGA Tour professionals. But I have been a culprit that has frustrated a professional golfer. And I'm at no apology for it either. No, absolutely. Come here, gentlemen. I want to kick off our show, and I might be catching you both on the hop here. This brought me down a bit of a rabbit hole uh, today when I was doing my research of sports people who played other sports. So I have a few names I want to throw out and both of your faders are up here so you can just shout the answer if you know it um, and a couple of big names that I was pretty amazed that uh, played at a very high level or in some cases internationally in other sports that you wouldn't think of. So Gareth Bale obviously is golf. Paolo Maldini. Croquet. Croquet. Mark Langdon? Oh, I, I would have gone tennis. Um, I don't know. Ooh, tennis is correct. He played uh, one nil to Mark Langdon. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know tennis. There's a isn't the Italian Open right beside the Stadio Olimpico? I think when you when you have been over to a few Roma matches, I think you passed through the the, the tennis there. So tennis is big in Italy. Uh, Raphael van der Vaart. I mean, the Dutch like darts. I go darts. Oh, he's gone two out of two. He's jumped in. He's he knows his sport, Mark Langdon. He knows his sport. My God, is correct. Right. Ivan Perisic. I mean, I, I'll go for... I mean, sort of. it's not the national sport, but sort of water polo is huge in Croatia. I'd sort of guess at that. No. Not water polo. Wrong for, yeah. What else would they play in, in Croatia? Croatia? The they beautiful country. Big, the they, they, haven't got, they haven't got a uh, rugby team so we'll try athletics did they c- cycling or athletics athletics no I was I was trying to give you a few clues given the good weather Orienteering. the good beaches the nice beaches surfing so Ivan Perisic has represented Croatia internationally at beach volleyball so mm. there you go there you go beach volleyball um, I have a couple of others I just want to rattle through them Andrew Flintoff was boxing Michael Jordan had baseball uh, Sonny Bill Williams is boxing I think they're fairly obvious ones Andy Gorham former Manchester United and Rangers goalkeeper amongst other clubs Scotland uh, That's the sport where they throw the poles Oh, that, that's highland, a very good the high, guess. The Highland sport. Yeah, I don't know the name, but that's a very that's what. If I didn't know the answer, I'd be guessing that now as well. But that's also incorrect. <laughs> I, I, I go um, something like shot put. Shot put, no. And I'm re- reliably informed by our producer Ronan. Caber toss is the name of that sport, Ruby. So <laughs> that's, it was on his hip, me tug. Um, no, he played cricket for Scotland. Represented uh, Scotland at cricket. Um, so Vivian Richards the cricket player also played soccer for Antigua uh, let's have three more so Petr Cech 
Uh, I think I know this one. Um, ice hockey. Ice hockey is correct. Ice. Yeah. Uh, you're up against an expert here, Ruby. I must say, I. Well, I knew I was beaten before I started, yeah. so I'm absolutely <laughs> not even worried. Um, last, last two. Ashley Barty. Tennis played. Oh. I mean, I, gymnastics. Gymnastics. I'll go for something like surfing. Surfing. Cricket. 2015 she played in uh, the Women's Big Bash uh, tournament as well and I think she's fairly handy at golf as well I'm reliably informed um, before I get to the last one which is which Ruby you're not allowed to answer um, the second last one now I'm probably going to butcher this pronunciation so Mark you might be able to correct me on this Tim Visa former goalkeeper in the Bundesliga uh, 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 yeah probably Visa um Oh, he's wrestling, isn't he? He is indeed, the WWE. And my final one for you, Mark Langdon, the well-known, well-respected, highly acclaimed former horse racing jockey, Ruby Walsh. What <laughs> other sport is Ruby associated, associated with and played at a, a younger age? Uh, I, I go for hurling. Hurling. It no, is, never. No. I'm a Mark. Oh, sorry, Ruby. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. My geography's let me down there. So the answer is, of course, Ruby Walsh? Rugby. Rugby. Ah. There. Yeah. Nice, nice rugby, I'm right Nace to say. rugby club. Yeah. Yeah. There you have it. Jamie Osborne, is that the, the latest product of Nace? Course centre, yeah. yeah. And, and a few others coming through as well. Yeah, Jimmy Kelly, Phil Lawler were the internationals, or had been the previous Nace rugby club internationals when I was there. There's been a few since. Rugs, rugby's loss was racing's game. I don't think so. I just, I did. No one really missed out on me now playing rugby. That I guarantee you. Right. Not Mark even Langdon. sure the lads I played with wanted me on the team to tell you the god honest truth. <laughs> well, you never know. You never know. Um, right. Let's get down to business, gentlemen. Um, Late last week, Juventus were found guilty of transfer irregularities and docked 15 points by the Italian Football Association's Sporting Tribunal, a decision that pushes them from third place down to mid-table. 11 current or former Juventus directors were also banned, including former President Andrea Agnelli for two years and a couple of other, most notably uh, Fabio Paratici, who is now at Tottenham Hotspur. He's been banned for two and a half years. So Mark Langdon, what exactly were Juventus found guilty of doing? Yeah, so, um, I mean, essentially have been found sort of guilty of cooking their books and, um, you know, uh, I, I'm, in, in, ter- in footballing terms, what they've done is they've been accused of, particularly in sort of swap deals, uh, rating the value of players higher than what um, would be expected. And the reason why that um, is, is crucial in sort of, in terms of, um, sort of the way that football finances work is that your transfer that the player you sell is, is revenue back into you and then over the next say four or five years if you sign a player for five years um, you pay that over the length of their contract so I mean a, a simple way would be um, that you maybe you know you sell a player for, for 10 million um, you get 10 million of revenue back and if that's the swap deal where you're buying somebody off the other club for um, 10 million then um, you know you would and they sign a five-year contract, you're only paying two million um, over sort of, you know, for each of those five years. And so um, the accusation and what they've been found guilty of is is just doing that to manipulate their um, finances and um, their, their, their books over um, a number of um, sort of years and transfers. Um, and Yelly and a lot of other people had already quit the club um, ahead of 
um, this uh, announcement. And I think it's very interesting what happens to Paratici um, at Tottenham because you know he's got a very important role at the club. Um, if he sort of, you know, I'm, I'm sure he'll. he'll appeal against um you know the decision but he's somebody that you know very much seen as influential in kind of making um some of those deals and you know if he is found guilty there, there's some suggestion that maybe he could still um work at tottenham um the decision would be whether um you know tottenham if he's found guilty would would still enable him and want him at the club and of course he's got links to Conte um, you know this is an important month for transfers anyway so it's not just Juventus that this, that this impacts on I think it is also um, Tottenham but from a Juventus point of view um, you know they're likely now to miss out on the Champions League next season which is going to be you know a huge problem um, for them because financially they really need to be in um, the Champions League and they've been making a decent recovery in recent months to get themselves back into sort of the, the top four in Syria, but this, and I think that the, you know one of the reasons why they've been punished so heavily is that they, they they really wanted it to be at a level where they were going to be unable to qualify for the Champions League or make it very difficult for them to qualify for the Champions League. The actual suggestion was for a nine-point deduction, but they they went even further than that. Went for fifteen. Um, you know, I think swap deals are commonplace in Italian football more so than in any other country. Um, and I, I think this maybe shines a light on one of the issues that people have um, with them um, just from a, a regulatory point of view in that um, it wouldn't be the sort of the only time really that eyebrows have been raised maybe at some of the transfer fees that have been put on when there's a swap deal involved. Juventus have been charged and cleared of this offence in the past. So why are they being charged with it again? Is it not double jeopardy? Yeah, I, I, th- I think it is. I mean, it, the interesting thing was it wasn't only um, Juventus that were um, that, that were um, kind of, I, I suppose, in the dock really um, with, with this because there were about sort of seven or eight other um, Italian teams that were also said to be you know kind of breaking um the rules and i suppose that the rules is uh yeah it's whether it's the the actual rules or just down to integrity and i think that what's happened is that um you know juventus have just been um kind of i think just been done on the basis that that what the italian authorities wanted to to clamp down on this and almost it looks like from the outside is that they're almost wanting to to make a kind of big deal um, of of Juventus because you know I, I think Juve have, have come out and said that what they've done isn't technically illegal um, and so you know I think they were very surprised when um, you know when it was um, handed down to them the 15 um, points but um, you know there is a lot of um, I suppose evidence that. Um, you know, that there was some wrongdoing and, um, you know, therefore they feel like the prosecutors have, have been able to successfully argue that, that, you know, they had a case um, to answer. So that you, you're right, they, they, they went after Juventus more than once um, and the fact that Juve are on the Italian stock exchange, I think, um, is probably um, why they were eventually um, managed to be charged because they were able to, um, you know, uh, tap phones and, and sort of get evidence that way. So 
Because obviously BMO has been quoted as being creative accounting, but you're on about the losses that UVA have been making. So they lost $250 million last year, $210 million that was blamed on COVID. Their shareholders, that is floated on the stock exchange, have pumped $700 million into Juventus since. Now they've been docked 15 points. How long more can this go on? Well, I think with somebody like Juventus, um, they're in a, a better position than nearly any other Italian team because um, they got a good deal in terms of sort of they've got um, you know, naming rights on their stadium. They were able to build their own stadium. If you look at some of the other sort of giants of Italian football, they're only able to rent their stadium off of the local council, and um, that's causing problems for for virtually all of those teams. So I think that they will be um, sort of robust enough to be able to. To, to, to ride this. The problem will be is that they are going to struggle in the transfer market in terms of being able to sort of, you know, get themselves right back up amongst Europe's elite. And if, you, if you're unable to do that, then you, you become something of an also-ran and, you know, it becomes a vicious circle, really, in terms of the Champions League. If you reach in the latter stages of the Champions League, you generate more money, you bring in the best players, and you, you, you kind of keep yourself um, at Europe's top table. Juventus were already struggling in that regard, and so now they're, they're going to be unable to bring in high-quality players. They're not going to have the wage bill to fight it out with the likes of Paris Saint-Germain and, and Manchester City and, and teams like that. So I think they probably need to look to their, their, their youth and that they've got some um, you know, some interesting young players that are coming through and you know, there probably have to be a period of patience. But a lot of Juventus's financial issues come down to the fact that they went all in for Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, yeah, that, that was a deal they really didn't need to do. Um, they decided that they were going to push the boat out for him. Um, it, it didn't work out because they didn't win the Champions League and now they're probably having to take several steps backwards. Um, you, you, this is not unusual for Juventus. They were relegated previously, lost most of their best players and eventually you know, fought their way back to the, 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 the top of Italian football. You know, When Antonio Conte first went in, um, they were, were not in a good place and he managed to you know win them the title and they had an unbeaten season he was the one that really sort of got them back um you know in, in terms of sort of fighting for um sort of, you know top trophies again and so they probably just need to reset and and, and go again with uh, a, a, a more uh, i would say sort of limited budget in future ruby mentioned that you know, Juventus have been charged in, in the past there in Genoa, Genoa, Sampdoria, Empoli, Pescara, Parma and Pisa all involved previously. Like, there's no indications that this is, is widespread in Syria. Uh, I asked that purely out of heart and I was such a soft spot for Syria uh, back to the James Richardson and Football Italia days, but that, that this isn't going to be widespread and there's not going to be more cases that emerge Um across Syria uh, but having said that like I mean if clubs are engaged in fraudulent swap deals to, to, to cook the books you know that there's more than one club involved yeah I, I mean of course <laughs> you know Juventus were not doing this on their own they were um, you know often uh, getting pretty close to the same clubs on, on a number uh, of occasions and I think there will be some people say well there's not that much 
wrong with this, really, because, you know, it, it, does it really matter if you both value... I mean, what is a transfer value anyway? I'm sure you, you could go through a whole list of transfers and, and, you know, some of them just don't make any sense, do they? You know, um, in terms of someone can be really cheap and some can be, um, you know, ludicrously e- expensive. And so, I mean, probably the Italian guys will say, well, what does it matter if we both think that player A is worth... 15 million each, uh, and you know another team thinks it's, or the the authorities think it's only worth 8 million. I mean, you know, who's to say what what a transfer is worth? And I think that that's a very difficult sort of thing to prove, really, in terms of how much a player, um, you know, should should be. Because with, uh, you, you could go through history and look at two players with similar abilities, and you know, quite often transfer fees are not the same, and so you, you do often wonder, um, you know how clubs come to the, the, the decision that they do um, in terms of that. And it's not only on transfer fees. I mean, you know, in terms of sort of, um, I suppose, the finances in football, I mean, eyebrows have been raised at certain clubs with the amount of sponsorship they're able to bring in, um, particularly when they're owned um, by... Yeah, I suppose nations, and then they, they, you know, they're then getting sponsored left, right, and centre um, for, for everything. And um, you know, Manchester City last week, in in terms of that Deloitte um, sort of football league, was seen to be um, the club that was bringing in the most turnover in European football. And I mean, I think that would come as a surprise to anybody that you know goes to Real Madrid or, or, or somewhere like that. So um, you know, their sponsorship is is very strong. They're, they're able to do a lot of deals, um, and you know, that that's the way that it is, um, you know, for, for teams. But I, I certainly think that UEFA, FIFA and each individual country are looking into sponsorship deals and looking into transfer fees because they do, um, and, and certainly in terms of this with the Italian authorities, they do want to clean up, um, in inverted commas, I, I think some, um, you know, some, some, some deals that, have, that, that are clearly considered not right. Moving on from that, UEFA are considering or are trying to change their financial fair play rules to deal with Chelsea and uh, contracts or long contracts that it's handing out. Yes, I mean, this is another one of those where if you've got good lawyers, you will find ways around um, rules, I suppose, and make them work to your advantage. I mean, I... I would say that I think the reports here about it just being Chelsea would be incorrect. It's just that Chelsea are, at the moment, of course, on a transfer splurge and that they are signing players on long contracts. And the reason, or one of the reasons that it's seen for them to do that is because it's advantageous in terms of financial fair play because, um, as I was saying earlier, when you buy a player, um, the transfer fee is spread out over the, the length of their contract. So if you can get a player on an eight-year deal, um, you know, you're only having to pay out um, an eighth of that transfer fee um, every year in terms of putting it on the books. I mean, it's supposed to be, um, and and FIFA recommended five years is the maximum for any player to sign a contract. And I think what Chelsea have been doing um, is just putting options beyond those five years um, and the option is with them um, to extend by another year or by another two years and that's the way that they're currently um, working around it. I mean, I, I suppose you can understand why um, you know, you, uh, 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 UEFA and, and FIFA would not want players to be tied maybe to eight or nine year contracts because of 
um, you know, maybe it's not in the player's interest to be, um, you know, sort of tied down for that long. But at the same time, um, you know, that there will be other players where that is, of course, a, a benefit to know that you're getting guaranteed income for, for that amount of time. I, I think it's going to be very difficult for UEFA um, to come down too heavily on financial fair play because I mentioned this before, um, but clubs are, are smart or they, they certainly employ people that are smart and whatever rules you put in place, they will have you know tens of people trying to work out how they can um, make the rules work for themselves. And I think it's very difficult for UEFA to clamp down completely on this or any type of financial fair play. Sticking with the topic of transfers, Bournemouth look to have agreed a €23 million Euro deal with Villarreal for Nicholas Jackson. Darren Randolph is actually rumoured to be going to Bournemouth as well. But it uh, looks like Everton are now managerless and they've been uh, usurped by Spurs for the signing of uh, Dan Juma on loan from Villarreal. Another blow for Everton. Yeah, I mean, Dan Juma was a player that was influential in Villarreal reached the uh, Champions League semi-finals and I mean he'd done well previously um, at Bournemouth uh, you know uh, on the versatile forward can play on the wing or through the middle um, and I think he would have been a good signing uh, for, for Everton because I watched their game at West Ham on Saturday and they were so desperately short of attacking quality it was unreal that they could have played for you know another 90 minutes and I don't think they would have got close to scoring goals so a really big blow for Everton, I think in, in terms of Tottenham, they obviously wanted somebody else um, in that forward line. They've got um, you know Richarlison on the bench at the moment, but Brian Hill has been injured. Lucas has been injured for a long time, and so um, they, 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 they did want to bring in another forward that can play out wide or through the middle. I think there'll be some Spurs fans that are thinking this is very much a cheap option, and you know they've managed to gazump Everton. For a player, when you know Chelsea and Arsenal were were were, were battling out for, for players that were worth sort of 80 million, and you know Tottenham are shopping in the loan market. But I actually think if you look at his record and um, kind of what he's done previously in the Premier League and what he's done in the Champions League, I don't think it's a a, a bad signing for Spurs on a free transfer. But it's probably a bigger blow for Everton because um, they desperately need players all over the pitch but particularly in that final third Obviously Frank has gone from Everton but for Irish fans Jim Goodwin is under a bit of pressure in Aberdeen after they got beaten 1-0 by Darville in the Scottish Cup Yeah I mean this was you know one of the biggest shocks probably, I mean, probably in Scottish football history I mean uh, Darville in the what sixth tier um, uh, of, of Scottish football beating Aberdeen I, it's very difficult I would say I'm not close enough to know whether Aberdeen uh, um, you know, playing poorly or anything like that, but they have lost what seven of their last nine games now. Um, they got, and, you they know, got they're five nil at the weekend as well. Yeah, and, you know, they're, they're a pretty big club um, in, in Scotland, and so it's completely unacceptable. Darvill, I think, were thirty-three to one um, to beat Aberdeen, which just goes to show what kind of shock um, it, it, it was. And you know, it's always difficult, I think, for a manager to sort of ride, um, you know, that kind of embarrassment, really. Did you uh, hear the manager's team talk at halftime? It was it was magic. I think I have the quotes here from um, where's his name? Mick Kennedy, Darvill manager Mick Kennedy. Uh, stirring, or sorry, pre-match team talk was captured by BBC Scotland cameras inside the home dressing room. Kennedy told the players, "I read that the average man lives to about seventy-seven. 
40 million minutes in his life. I'm asking you to give your absolute utmost for the next 90. 90 minutes out of 40 million. That's all I'm asking for. Be prepared to give everything. That's, that's that's how you do it. And I'm sure that's an arousing Scottish accent as well that I'm not even going to uh, go against no, you. Go on, go on. Bring back your childhood play there as no. narrator. <laughs> do you know what? I tell you, I've, I've done done my homework on this. So the West of Scotland Premier League that Darvel do do play in, their uh, owner is um, from a pie background. Uh, Mr. Gull uh, said today he'll later attend the World Championship Scottish Pie Awards in North Lanarkshire, where his company Brownings last year scooped the world's best Scotch pie title. That's that's what you you know. Just in case you need to know that. And Darvel is also uh, the birthplace of uh, Sir Alexander Fleming, who discovered penicillin. So that's my uh, that's your education for today, gentlemen. I do want to finish on it. We're getting all sorts of education here to see as a team in Mark, aren't we? Yeah, I do want to finish on a, a football story. Listen, it's Darvel's biggest win, Ruby, since William Wallace uh, and his men defeated an English force uh, in 1296 during the Wars of Scottish Independence. Of course, local poet Blind Harry also tells the story of how English General Fenwick supposedly killed Wallace's father, who was killed during that battle in Darvel. Maps of the area name a mound to the east of Loudon Hill as Wallace's grave. So, you know. Didn't see that part in Braveheart. No, that, that was the director's cut. Um, Mark, let's finish with a football story uh, featuring Paris Saint Germain and their ultras. Yeah, well, yeah this, was, this was really good because um, PSG played um, a, a cup tie. We were just talking there about Aberdeen playing um, a, a team from, from the sixth tier. Um, PSG were playing also a team um, from the sixth tier in, in the French Cup. Um, and Mbappe got five of the goals in a 7-0 win, so they didn't struggle um, like Aberdeen. But it, it, uh, some of the ultras, and particularly one of the ultras, was actually a uh, Paris Saint-Germain, um, was, was playing in defence um, for um, the, the sort of non-league um, team. And he was just wondering whether he should even tackle Mbappe because he didn't want to put him out um, for, for if there was going to be a game. Um, he obviously, the Champions League is coming up. So he had, uh, you know, he was sort of saying, suggesting that he went easy on Kylian uh, Mbappe um, because... Um, yeah, he, he didn't want to injure him. Um, so yeah, uh, I mean, if you go easy, even if you go hard on Mbappe, you'll probably score a couple of goals. But um, yeah, um, not wanting to go tough on him, um, yeah, it, um, it ended badly um, for, for the non-leaguers. So thoughtful, so thoughtful. Mark Langdon, thanks a million for taking our call. We have a quick break to take. We'll be back with tennis and horse racing. Game on, racing. Welcome back to Game On. So Thursday afternoon, we'll see the Goffs Tiestes chase take place at Gorham Park, a field that is dominated by Gordon Elliott, who has nine of the 18 runners. Willie Mullins has three. Hernita Bromhead, Noel Mead, Eric McNamara and Barry Connell make up the rest. But there is one other one, and that is Darren's Hope, trained by Capaquin County Waterford trainer Bob Murphy, who only has the two horses in training, and she has a massive chance, Darren's Hope. And I'm delighted to say her rider, Danny Mullins, will join us on the line. Danny, how are you? Good, good, yeah, great to be on. Thank you very much, Danny. You won the Tiestes in 2020 about Total Recall, and of course it is your local track and your local big race. Yeah, it's my local track. You know, I remember going there as a school child, and I love it to win the, the flagship race at Gorn on Total Recall. It was a special day for me, and hopefully I can try win it again. Look, Darren's hope Bob Murphy trains, or he only has a very small team of horses, how hard will it be for him to take on the might of Gordon Elliott, Willie Mullins, etc., in a race as big as the taste is? 
Yeah, it's going to be difficult to win a race like that. But, you know, Bob is brave. He, he took on the Gordon Elliott team in Punchestown the last day in a grade two, and he beat them, you know, a 20 to 1 outsider in a grade two that day. So he, he's proved it can be done. And to see small teams competing, uh, it's what national hunt racing is all about. Uh, I think Darren's Hope is going there with a very big chance on Thursday. She has a big chance. Would you be? I know you're a stat man, weights and handicaps. She's a sex, she's a novice. Do you think she takes a lot of the right boxes for you? Yeah, definitely. You know, that weight on testing ground around Gorn, a novice, the second season novice, um, gives her plenty of experiences. And novices in those type of races are the ones you know you want to be on. She's a mare that likes to be ridden close enough to the pace. I'm sure you've gone through it. Will you be able to get yourself to the front of the field? You know, hopefully she gets away early. But the the tricky thing about a Tieste is it's such a short run to the first fence that that first half of furlong is going to be very important for me to, to get out, get down and get a nice jump at the first. I think last year I, I pulled up at the back of the first seven slipped on landing so you know for a three mile race it can be all over in the first furlong so that's going to be one of the most important furlongs for me You mentioned her beating men in the crooner in the Florida Power Novice Chase at Pontchastown that was two miles and six the Tieste is a little over three miles real testing ground you confident enough she'll get it? I think the trip should be no problem for her she was supposed to run at Christmas and missed that engagement, which was not ideal. But Bob, I was chatting to him during the week, and he thinks she's in great shape. So, you know, for a man with a very small team, he's quite shrewd and knows his stuff. So I, I think trip will be no issue to her. And hopefully, you know, the test is as a race that can be a good trial for some of the other big stay and handicap chases through the spring. It can indeed. 67-day layoff. Is Bob happy enough that she'll overcome that? He is, you know, at Christmas she had a couple of entries in Limerick and in Leopardstown, but he just wasn't happy with her over the Christmas. He said he'd take the back seat for the Christmas period and aim towards Gorn. So he said all her work at home has been good and fingers crossed, you know, it's going to be competitive, but off that weight, I think we'll be going there with a winning chance. Of course you will. Obviously, the feature race on the card is the Galmoy Hurdle. Davy Russell is back in action. He'll ride to Hoopoo. Has it been good to have him back and having him back in the wear room, Danny? Um, yeah, I, I looked at him when he came back in the other day, and I just smiled. I said, "You didn't stay away long," and uh, he he just smiled back at me. And you know, was, we were sitting in Torlis the other day as well. There was a mare called Grampy Lowry running uh, in the mare's chase, and I said, "Wouldn't it be nice to see you riding that one?" He looked at me a little bit puzzled and I said, well, Granny and Granda together, it'd be fantastic. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're giving him a nice warm welcome. Danny, Tyestes is the feature race this weekend, but we are only sort of 10, 12 days out now from the Dublin Racing Festival. You are in the position where you'll ride a lot of horses for, for Willie Mullins. Paul Town can only ride one in any race. Are you looking forward to the Dublin Racing Festival? Yes, you know, it's it's probably the most action-packed weekend of proper grade one horses, let alone in Ireland, it, it, even with Cheltenham, you know, it's they're spread out over four days. In Leopardstown, it's two days of take and pass, proper grade one race, and then that's any jockey's dream. 
Look, Paul would only be able to ride one in each race, and I looked through them earlier. You had the juvenile, the Arkle, the Gold Cup, the Champion Hurdle, and the Good Novice Hurdle that Fasal Vega's in, where there could be good rides for you. I mean, he'll probably ride Lossy Mouth. I mean, you could end up on Blood Destiny or, or, or Galamar. So in the Arkle, you could end up on Dysart Dynamo, Flame Bearer, El Fabiolo, Statler maybe in the Gold Cup, Vaughan in the Champion Hurdle. You could end up with an unbelievable book of rides for somebody who, in theory, is a second jockey. Yes, you know, there's plenty of other lads in close footing as well. So competition, there'll be loads of competition for all the rides. And at Christmas, I got to ride some very good ones. And if I can prove my worth over the next week or two, hopefully I might get the leg up on a couple of those horses you've mentioned at the Dublin Festival. I've been reading Vaughan at Christmas in the... In the um Madison, isn't it? Madison Hurdle. He was finished second to Stateman. Paul would probably stick with Stateman. Would you be looking forward to him? I think it, if I could ride Vaughan again, it it should be it make an exciting ride for the weekend. You know, Honeysuckle. It's going to be her, I suppose, final trial before Cheltenham, and she's going to have to put up with a, a fair attack from the Willie Mullins stable. And if I could get the ride again on Vaughan. I'd give him a big chance of reversing form of, with Stateman, but you know the one that's finished in front, I suppose it's advantage Stateman at the moment, but I think if I could get the leg across for Vaughan again, I'd give him a big chance of frightening Stateman, but then we have to deal with Honeysuckle. Yeah, that'll be some race, and obviously galloping the champ Statler is a horse you've ridden in the past. He had an okay, he had a good run, I suppose, in Tremor, trying to give way to Manila Indo. He'd be a cracking ride, ride in the Paddy Power Irish Gold Cup. I think he would. Leperstown should suit him an awful lot better. He was just touched off in Tremor, but as Willie has done in the past, he went down to Tremor, and the Sattler will probably have learned. It's a tight track down there, up and down hills, looking, I'd say, forward to a gold cup. I think what Sattler will have learned in Tremor will definitely stand to him, but you'll see more of the real Statler around the big galloping track like Leopardstown should he run against Galloping the Champ. It'll be a cracking weekend's race and Danny, I wish you all the best Thursday at the Tiestas. It is of course live on RTE. I should know the answer. One or two. It's on one or the yeah. other anyway. Two, RTE two. Thanks well, for RTE television, there, Ruby. Come RTE television, basis. Shane. I tell you, someday I'll be as good as you and I'll be able to trot that out. <laughs> but yeah, Danny, thanks for me for taking our call. Enjoy the rest of your evening. We've another quick break to take. Game on. Rugby. No, you're very welcome back to the final part of Game On. It's great to have your company in this Tuesday evening. We are going to be chatting tennis with Stephen Higgins of Cross Court Few. But before we do, the Six Nations kicks off this weekend. Ruby, are you looking forward to the Six Nations? I am. I love the Six Nations. Um, I wish it was on about half five now in the first game. If you want to tell you the God honest truth, I'd be working at the Dublin Racing Festival. It would be much better if Ireland were playing Wales at that hour rather than half past two. But look, I am. And it's, I suppose it's shame when you look at the Irish team and how good it is and the position that Andy Farrell has them in mm. as, a, as if you're a fan of, I think as a fan of sports you'd have to be looking forward to what Ireland could maybe achieve at the Six Nations and on into the World Cup they're a great squad of players Absolutely spoken like a true former rugby player Ruby I tell you that's, that's uh, you know and I echo your comments and sentiments hopefully it does go well and hopefully we push on in that World Cup as well um, RT Sports Damien O'Mara was over at the Six Nations launch yesterday um, and as uh, Ruby alluded to there our, our first matches against Wales unfortunately at a quarter past two it does clash with the racing but sure you can tape it and watch it later when you get home from the Dublin Racing Festival but uh, Warren Gatlin returning as Wales head coach and uh, Damien O'Mara caught up with Warren yesterday 
I thought we'd consigned all of this to history. Did you ever think you'd be back here in this setting? Uh, no, never. Uh, I had a great time, um, time living in Wales and loved it, but uh, I never thought I'd be back sort of coaching Wales in the Six Nations. There's obviously a special connection between you, the players, the country, but you've never struck me as a man who engages in sporting romanticism, so is it fair to presume that you see a group of players that maybe have underperformed in recent years and that have something special still in them? I'm not sure that they've underperformed. I just think it's just been a little bit inconsistent. You know, they've had some really good good performances. You know, winning the Six Nations in 2021 and probably could have won the Grand Slam and be disappointed that you know, leading against France that they didn't uh, close that game down to win the the Grand Slam, but they won the Six Nations. And um, and that's probably the frustrating thing has just been the inconsistency and then some performances or losses against Italy last year at home and then losing to Georgia as well so um, there's definitely some talent in the squad and what I'm encouraged about particularly in the last few weeks is seeing the region start to perform a bit better and have some good good performances in Europe and so we've got a group of players that have come in at least with a, a little bit more of a spring in their step and a little bit of confidence so that's that's something to sort of hang your hat on in terms of um, the preparation for the Six Nations. The Heineken Cup launched a couple of weeks back there was obviously speculation around coaching departures and coaching arrivals and there were people there that day were telling us beyond doubt that you were going to be the next England coach. Was that ever a possibility? Was Twickenham oh, ever a likely destination? I don't think so. I mean, that, um, you know, that was just speculation in, in the media and I think when Wales approached me and the opportunity to, to go back and the history that I had with Wales was um, you know, was something that uh, having spoken to my family was that they, they were excited about that as well and uh, I said I wasn't expecting to come back, but looking forward to it. Game on. Tennis. So the Australian Open is moving into its final foray, I suppose, or getting to the exciting part anyway, and I'm delighted to be joined, or we're delighted to be joined on the line or in studio even by Stephen, Kig- Stephen Higgins of Cross Court View. Stephen, tomorrow morning Novak Djokovic will play Andrei Rublev in the quarter, semi-quarterfinal, final, first third of the quarterfinals for the Australian Open. He's been carrying a hamstring injury, but he's been managing to soldier on. Because he wants to, is I suppose the phrase for Novak. Uh, after he comfortably dismissed Alex de Menor, the home favourite, in his last round, he was asked afterwards by Jim Courier of why he was so mean, basically, with the convincing display. And he said, because he wanted to... Actually, this kind of harks back to, well, no one wants to talk about 2022 and all the shenanigans at the start and the deportation. Apparently, Alex de Menor had said something that Djokovic didn't really like at the time. And so I think Djokovic was kind of proving a point in his last match. So now he plays, yeah, Andrei Rublev, who... Uh, top of Dominic team beforehand and I cannot see unless their hamstring flares up again and costs him his fitness I cannot see Novak Djokovic losing to Andrei Rublev There's been a lot of I suppose <coughs> content surrounding Novak Djokovic and there's been a lot of newspaper headlines and plenty of column face fi- space filled with stories about Djokovic and on, even on the BBC website today Azarenka supports Djokovic and says players aren't villains like how much should we read into this as a casual tennis fan I suppose looking from the outside in to all these the toilet breaks or lack thereof toilet breaks the the injury breaks and so on so forth are players being treated fairly or is it coming to a crescendo perhaps in this tournament where hold on a sec hold on a sec that 
player welfare isn't being being put to the to the fore. Well, it's interesting. One of the uh, ticker headlines, I think it was on CNN, after Andy Murray's absolutely extraordinary efforts in the marathon battles, the ticker headline was about how he criticised not being able to have a bathroom break. Hmm. That was the ticker headline. You know, he played for six hours and then, you know, five hours. That's what you took out of it. There is an air of sensationalism, maybe in the absence of actually a real story. It's tricky as well for players because if you're an outspoken player like Nick Kyrgios, you'll get criticised. If you don't come up with you know, quotes, publishable quotes. Obviously, the media aren't really happy because they want them. I was just thinking of, say, Karen Hashinov, who is now a semi-finalist. Uh, he's Russian. If he comes out against, say, the Ukraine conflict in a vehement way, what repercussions would that have for his family, for him going back to Russia? If he's not strong enough against the conflict in Ukraine, he'll be criticised by fellow Ukrainian players, by the press. Why aren't you coming up against it? He can't really win in a sense. Like some of the Russian players who've spoken about it, Daria Kazakina and Rublev, they're based in Barcelona. But I think Kazakina had admitted she hadn't seen her father for a few years because she hasn't gone back and then the mother has come over recently. In some ways, players can't win. Djokovic is, of course, the pantomime villain of the tennis tour. Maybe with the lack of people like Serena Williams and Roger Federer and some of these stars around, he gets even more attention. Uh, I think some of it's been overdone. I mean, he doesn't need any inspiration or determination to win a tournament. Is, is he being picked on, though? Because, you know, he did come out with, say, only my injuries are questioned when some other players are injured, then they are the victims. But when it is me, I'm faking it. It is very interesting. I don't feel that I need to prove anything to anyone. Like, is, are we, are we, is he being picked on? Yeah, the only thing is, I think he is the star player on the tour Serena used to say that as well kind of why am I under so much scrutiny why do you want to know what I think about this why do you criticise my conduct and say the US Open fans not because you're the star of the sport you're obviously going to attract more attention and focus if you're big time people aren't that concerned about the world number 67 and what they're doing but they are concerned about someone who's 21 time major winner trying to win 10 Australian Opens the other thing is you know Djokovic you know, gets himself into his own trouble at times, but, you know, hitting the ball away, getting defaulted from the odd tournament. Uh, his conduct sometimes isn't what people would expect of, say, Rafael Nadal or Roger Federer. So on the one hand, yeah, I understand why he might think that he's picked on. But on the other, he's one of the all-time greats. He is the absolute star name in men's tennis now. So, you know, that's, that's how it is, really. Mm. Just on the Murray thing, because I think it was somewhat kind of glossed over. About, I know, I understand, I suppose, the CNN banner headline being about a toilet break when he's after playing an epic game of tennis, an epic contest and coming out on top. And, and that should be, we should be concentrating on the sporting side of things. But well, he was playing until four in the morning and, and he was denied toilet breaks and so on and so forth. So, so should, we, should tennis as a whole not be looking to change even minor things about, about how the players are treated? Yeah, well, one of the things about the night matches, and this is Croft at Roland Garros and Croft's up at the US Open, is what is the best balance for an evening match? Now, when I was at Roland Garros last year, they were experimenting with their night matches and it was about a €120 ticket for a match and you didn't know who would be playing. So, you know, I kind of hit the jackpot because Nadal was playing the night I got it and I would have paid three times the amount to see Nadal at Roland Garros doing his thing. But uh, there is a debate about it was getting to midnight, the Metro was finished, 
as you've seen obviously in Australia, two, three, four in the morning. It is absolutely ludicrous that you have some of the best athletes in the world playing at three or four in the morning. I think the best balance might be have one match started earlier, but say set the tickets at like thirty euro. So that if mm. you're on site for the day session, oh I might hang around for thirty euro to see whoever. Or if you're paying to go to the match, you'll get your values worth. Like, you know, if it's someone that isn't your favourite player, they're gonna be a great player, but you might get great value at thirty euro because maybe Djokovic or Nadal or Shantek might play. So I think that might be a balance that would work. Is that just not media though, trying to play tennis in Australia into those hours to make it more uh, wider to European American audience? Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. The session, the night sessions suit uh, particularly the European time zone much better. But I still think when Mario's playing till three and four, <laughs> it's just. It's just it, like I've seen it be a strong word, but it's just ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous to have these players playing so late at such a high level. Mm. So the other side of the men's draw, well, there's obviously another semi-quarterfinal tomorrow as well. Ben Shelton and Tommy Paul, both American, both unseeded, 20-year-old, 25-year-old. Big opportunity for either one. They're probably going to face Djokovic in a semi-final, but which way would you see that one going? Well, they've never played before, and as we've mentioned, of course, Ben you, Shelton. You love Ben Shelton. He's, he's never even been outside America before. He's he's learning all these new things. Um, an extraordinary run for Ben Shelton, who was the best college player, won three challengers. He was going to get a wild card into Australia anyway, but he won three challenger events to get himself inside the top 100 last year to confirm his place. Has had an incredible run. He's a really impressive looking guy. Lefty, about six four, very athletic, lots of power. Uh, Tommy Paul is one of these kind of unassuming, really impressive Americans. The American men's at the moment, obviously has been mentioned, it's the first time since 2005 that you have three men in the quarterfinals of a major going back to the US Open. And they really are on a charge. Unbelievably, in the top 50 at the moment, 10 of them are American. Uh, and so there has been this long wait since 2003 for an American male major winner. Uh, I'm not sure if one of these is gonna, guys is going to do it, but certainly the strength and numbers in that match, I think it, like it could go either way. Like We're all learning about Ben Shelton as much as he is. Tommy Paul is a really good player. I suppose you'd give him the edge because of experience and how well he's done in recent years, but it's a great kind of free match in a sense for Shelton. So the men's draw, Hachinov against Tsitsipas in a semi-final and as Ruby said there, Djokovic will probably play, well, should beat Rublev and will play Ben Shelton or Tommy Paul. On the women's side of things, how is it shaping up, Stephen? It's great to see Elena Rybikina, the Wimbledon champion, who, of course, unfortunately received no ranking points for winning the tournament. And she has had a bit of an axe to grind about that because she, I think she played one of her matches on court 13 oh. in the Australian Open, uh, which isn't really becoming of a major winner. And it's great to see her now back in form. She was excellent against Iga Svantec in the fourth round, knocked her out, had too much power, and then backed that up by knocking out Yelena Ostapenko, the former Roland Garros champion. She looks really good, serving really impressively. She'll play Victoria Azarenka next, who's now 33, but has won this title two times in a row, 10 years ago, actually. Mm. And Azarenka looks great, knocked out Jesse Bagula, who would have been maybe the second favourite for the women's. So that should be a really good match. And then on the other side, you've still got quarterfinals of Karolina Pliskova, the former two-time major finalist against Magda Lynette, kind of surprise uh, quarterfinalist there. She knocked out Caroline Garcia. And then probably the other really strong favourite left in the women's draw, Arena Sabalenka, who was actually unbeaten this season with eight matches, and she plays Donna Vekic. Would you, or are you, 
uh, Azarenka fan after her antics 10 years ago do you feel she was hard done by like she does herself uh, as a, I mean you have to respect her longevity I think it would if she can go on and win the title it would be 10 years since her last major win apparently that has not been done in the open air to have such a break between major wins uh, in 2020 she made a final of a major and I kind of wondered would she be able to kick on from there but she had all different sorts of issues with her visa as well and, and her kid and stuff of, of getting the kid to be able to bring her with her to tournaments um, but it's great to see her back playing so well I was disappointed in Jesse Pagula I think it kind of almost seemed like the event was a bit or the occasion was a bit much for her and they're very good friends as well off the court and she didn't really play to the potential we hope but you know, she's a great returner as well, which is a good combination against Rubikina. I kind of see Rubikina and Sabalenka as the ones who'll probably make it through to the final now. In a single word, word who was going to win the women's uh, side of the draw? I I think I'll go with Sabalenka. Sabalenka, there you have it. I've heard it first. Stephen Higgins, thank you very much. Sinead, that is all we have time for from myself, Ruby and all of the Game On team. Uh, Game On will be back at six o'clock tomorrow. Better the Silva will be up next in a couple of minutes after we check in with the news desk. RTE 2FM.